You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. My name is Lisa Pelling. I am the chief analyst at the think tank Arena Idea, which is co-hosting this event with the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. We are very hope- happy to co-host this event as it's taken some amount of planning and preparations and all along this process, we were afraid that you would not be interested. We thought we'll bring a professor from Columbia University. It's a high ranking international scholar, but do you really know? And would you care to spend time in beautiful May with us in this lecture hall and come listen to something that also in times like these seems like a very Uh, maybe optimistic, even naive project of trying to formulate a new convention for international mobility. But you were indeed, there are many of you here today, there's been a great interest for this uh, lecture. I'm very happy that you've all come and I will serve today as your moderator. I will also make a short introduction into the some of the issues that we will treat here uh, today. But my function as a moderator is to make sure that you can make the most out of being here with us this afternoon. So uh, if there's anything that is very unclear, concepts that you don't understand, um, wordings that you you think need some explanations, please do not hesitate to raise your hand and we'll stop and we'll take time to explain. There will also be time before we end the seminar for a round of questions. The only thing we need to ask from you is that you pose the questions into a microphone. Uh, We are recording this session that will be released as a podcast sometime uh, um, by the end of this this week. Uh, So we need you all to speak into a microphone if you you, uh, take take the floor. Uh, we're also encouraging you to try reach out to people who cannot be here physically. If there are things mentioned here that you think worthy of spreading, of sharing with other people, of commenting, please don't hesitate to keep your cellular phone in your hand and tweet. Uh, there is a hashtag that the Institute of International Affairs use is the UI events, UI events. So please use that hashtag for us to have a a Twitter conversation about these things. If things are said that are particularly brilliant or spicy or uh, controversial or provocative, please please share them with people who are outside of this hall. Uh, Very briefly on the structure of this event, we have an hour and a half. It's far too little for the very broad issues that we have uh, decided to address. So this is very much a a conference on what's at stake rather than what are the answers. Uh, We'll have to come back. (laughs) I hope we will get to co-host more events with the the Institute as well to come back more to the answers, but it's more of of what is at stake. We have two very distinguished keynote speakers that have been giving 15 minutes each for an introduction. And then we have uh, um, a panel that consists of different kinds of stakeholders and representatives of of civil society that I think will enrich with their comments and their perspective very much the debate. And as I said before we end, we'll open the floor as well for comments and questions from you in the uh, in the audience. Uh, so I think that's, I will introduce the speakers as they, uh, as they come along. I think that's uh, what I will say uh, for now. I will uh, show a few slides and trying to compress uh, what could be an introduction in some 10 or or 12 um, uh, slides for you uh, this afternoon. So this is the pointer, right? 
Mm, yes, big words. Ah, so what are the numbers? Let's start with the numbers. You know the basic facts about the numbers. There are more refugees in the world today than in any time since the Second uh, World War. You also know the statistics from the uh, uh, High Commissioner for Refugees. Some 65 million people are displaced by, by, by war and persecution. Only some 22.5 million of them have actually crossed an international border. Other people have been forced to flee their homes, but are still in the country where conflict is taking place, where torture is happening, where people uh, need, to, uh, need to flee. But a, a very important part of the numbers, if we are to have an afternoon about global migration and global mobility that we need to keep in mind is that most people that cross borders today are in fact not refugees. Most people that cross borders are what you could term aspirational migrants that cross for other reasons such as looking for jobs. So most of the world's migrants are actually labor migrants. Now again, to get another sense of proportion, you need to add to the number of labor migrants some 258 uh, million people, according to UN statistics. Of course, it's, it's really difficult to get an exact number. But what we do know is that we need to add at least some 700 million additional labor migrants that are migrants within their own countries. Now, being a labor migrant within the subcontinent of India or within China indeed means crossing linguistic borders, crossing cultural borders, crossing into another majority religion. So in a sense, the conditions of these labor migrants very much are similar to uh, migrants that cross international borders as well. And women migrants make up almost half of the total number of the migrants of the world today. So the worldview that some of us might have had some 20 or 30 years ago were the male labor migrant was our the face of global migration. That is definitely not uh, true anymore. A part of the numbers as well is that even though there is increasing possibilities for people to change countries, to study, to do business, indeed to work in another countries, very many people still move without having the right to do so or stay in countries without having the actual uh, rights to stay. Very many people still need to travel along irregular, often very risky, indeed dangerous uh, routes to come to their uh, chosen country of destination. I want to spend like a few minutes with you since this is Sweden, Professor Doyle, I think you would excuse me to, to bring up this, uh, maybe not an intellectual, but a very much of a person that, that tried to explain the world. And if you are to explain such a complex phenomenon as migration, I think that Hans Rosling could help us understand. I hope that many of you have already get an opportunity to, to read his testimony to the world, uh, Factfulness. I was a little bit inspired by his book when I tried to make this presentation on how to make sense of, of migration in today's world. So the, the first mega misconception that Hans Rusling spent his professional life trying to make us understand was that the world is not divided in two. There is no gap 
There is no the poor people in that corner and the rich people in that corner. In fact, most of the people that live on the planet today are somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle between extremely poor and extremely rich. So if we are to focus on solutions for human mobility, for migration, we need to focus a lot of attention on the needs and the, and the challenges of people that are in the middle. You're familiar with this, with this graph where you have health uh, measured as um, uh, uh, life expectancy on this um, angle and income on the others, and you see that there is in fact no gap, but most people are in the in the middle. There is a very interesting tool that I, I would very much encourage you to have a look at if you want to look into what kind of people there is that we are um, uh, looking at and what kind of people are actually in the middle and what are their living conditions. It's Dollar Street. Are you familiar with this, with this tool? There is a, a street from the poorest income households to the richest income households. And then there's 30,000 photos of their living conditions. Uh, of their houses, of their means of transportation, of their beds, of their kitchens, indeed of their toothbrushes, for you to compare. And what is really interesting with these pictures is that given the income level, people's lives look very much the same. It's not such a big difference if you make a picture of a kitchen in China or in South Africa or in Sweden with people living on a similar income level it will look more or less the same. As soon as people can afford microwave ovens, they will buy microwave ovens. As soon as you can afford to have a toothbrush, you will buy one. As soon as you can afford to buy an electrical toothbrush, it's a great invention, you will buy one. Uh, so, so conditions look very much the same. Uh, you press the, the right one. This is one thing that you need to know about numbers. Aunt Rosling offered you a very good rule of thumb. This is the world PIN code. Uh, we are 7 billion people, and this is how they are divided. There is roughly 1 billion people living in, in the American continent. There's roughly 1 billion, a little less in Europe, a little bit more than 1 billion in Africa. And there are the additional three, uh, 4 billion people are actually living uh, in, in, in Asia. So the PIN code is 1, 1. One, four. Uh, but please note, as I said, there are people on all income levels, on all continents. So you cannot say this is the poor continent, this is the rich continent. There are poor and rich people living everywhere, indeed, also in every country. Uh, and this is a, to illustrate what I said about roughly the same standard. If you compare households in Haiti with those in Burundi, you would see that for the most uh, people that live on uh, um, uh, a monthly income of around 40 American dollars, that means less than $2 a day. What you have at the most is one toothbrush per family, or you have a stick that you chew and you try clean your teeth with this. If you move up the ladder to income levels that you can find nowadays in China or in the United States, you would have uh, electrical toothbrushes. I am attempting to um, show you the world in four income groups. Hans Rusling said it doesn't make sense anymore to uh, divide the world into uh, uh, non-developed countries and developed countries or industrial countries and non-industrial countries. He said let's try have the world divided into four groups instead. Um, and a problem with the division in a two 
uh, group's world would be that we tend to focus too much on the extremes. I am guilty myself. I love showing this picture as an illustration of the challenges of global migration. This is a true picture is not photoshopped, it's taken on the border between Europe and Africa, you know, there's a land border in, in Morocco on the Spanish enclaves on the Moroccan side of the border, and here you have some uh, uh, European golf players while there are African migrants trying to climb the six meter high uh, fence in the background. But that's one part of global migration, but we need to focus more on, on the other parts and look at the mobility needs of people at different income levels. And I will do this really, really quickly just to give you some, some food of thought. So what are the, what are the first income levels? There's roughly one billion people, it's only one billion, only one out of seven that live on less than $2 a day. They are extremely poor. In this, in this love condition, if you earn less than $2 a day, you need to walk very far to fetch water, you need to spend hours every day to fetch uh, um, wood to be able to cook your food. You have, uh, you mostly walk these ways barefoot and, and you cook, as you see on the stove there, you cook over open, open fire, which means you have to spend many, many hours a day just uh, uh, fetching, fetching wood. So what are the mobility needs of these people? Well, they are huge, but they're particularly, um, uh, what you need first of all is you need shoes so that you can walk some more kilometers, get further close. You need uh, a road out of poverty, some, some perspectives to move out of poverty, and a bike would be a great thing. So what we are waiting for for this billion people is we're waiting for the great innovations of these very light, extremely um, uh, long-lasting bikes that can help people uh, travel to hospitals when there are, or also travel to markets to sell their uh, goods, help their kids travel to, to remote schools. Income level number two, there you have three billion people today living. Uh, they are very poor. They live above two US dollars a day, up till eight, but they are not as poor as the extremely poor people. Here, what you do have is that many people on this income level, they have, because they can afford it, bought a bike maybe one, two bikes in a, in a small community or a bike per family, they would improve their lives greatly if they can get a motorcycle and if they could have a road for this motorcycle to travel on. Again, they could access markets, they can access healthcare, they can access um, help and, and, um, and networks. They need roads and they need need decent urbanization. For these people, it's more often not an option to try move uh, across international borders, but to move into cities. And many times they're barred from moving to cities, and when they do, they might lose their right to education, they uh, lose uh, other kinds of rights to vaccination, for instance, that they are granted when they stay in their, in their native communities. And what about level three? Well, you have like, here greatly improved. You see, for every level, you could triple the, the income level. So here you are up until 32 US dollars a day. There's a great difference. You have 2 billion people living on this, uh, on this level. Here, the mobility needs are a car. Uh, and you need here, you start needing labor migration uh, schemes that works within your region, within Latin America, within Western Africa, um, uh, um, within within the um, uh, uh, the, sub, uh, the Indian subcontinent, 
And you need multiple entry visas so that even though you are a circular migrant that only have a temporary uh, right to stay in your country, you can come back and go back and forth between your country and origin and where you work. And you need safe and inexpensive channels for remittances because many times if you have the opportunity to travel to another country to work, you would do so in order to support your family. You need to be able to send back this money in a safe way and in an inexpensive way so that not a lot of money is lost on the way. And I show my, my last picture for income for, and this is all of us in here, we are definitely all of us on income level four. We are one billion people in the world. The six other billion people live on different income levels with largely the same rights, but uh, radically different uh, immediate needs for, for mobility. What do we need? Well, we need portability of pensions. When we move and work in other countries, we need to be able to take uh, whatever we gain in that country back home when we return. We need validation of school leaving certificates and of our university degrees so that our labor market, our possibility to use our talents, our education is, 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 truly, is truly global. And we need a possibility to gain and maintain multiple citizenships so that the citizenship that we are giving by birth can be extended if we uh, move to another countries that we should also be able to to call our home. And we need indeed uh, visa-free uh, travel to be able to travel as students, as tourists, as business people to, to make the most out of, uh, out of mobility. So this is a, 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 just to throw in some more and making this seminar even more uh, complex, we need to make sure that when we talk about mobility solution, migration solutions, we keep in mind how the world is uh, divided and where we need to uh, focus our, our attention. Uh, I think I need to move on now to um, our first keynote uh, speaker. Um, uh, I would like to welcome up here Michael Doyle, who is a university professor at, of international affairs, law and political science, please. Michael Doyle, you're also the director of the Global Policy Initiative, uh, which has taken the initiative of the Model uh, International Mobility uh, Convention. I'm very happy that you have taken time to come to us today. You told me when we met last night that this is actually was your first night in Sweden because you spent one day in Stockholm in 2003. But I and to be at that time, uh, you were asked to come uh, by the then uh, Minister for Migration and Development Issues, Jano Karlsson. And I know that over the years, Swedish governments, a number of them, have sought your advice on these uh, issues. And we're very happy that we are your privileged audience today. The floor is yours, Michael, please. Th thank you. Thank you very much both for your introduction, outlining the circumstances of the, that people need to move in the, in the current world, and for your kind words for me. I'm indeed delighted to be here and welcome to you all. I, 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 my only regret is understanding that I stand between you and some beautiful weather outside, which is, I hope, typical for Stockholm this time of year. Otherwise, I'm depriving you of it. But I'm really very grateful uh, that you could join us for this conversation today. I'd like to take a few minutes to remark both on the past, where we've come from, and a potential future in a new model international mobility convention. But first on the past, I'm reminded that 
when I worked for Secretary General Kofi Annan, he asked me to prepare a report on migration to help identify what the international community needs to do and what the UN in particular could be doing. And I prepared this report for him. And he said, let's poll the members of the General Assembly to see if they're willing to step up and begin to discuss uh, a better framework for the movement of people across borders, migration in particular. And he said, so poll the members. And so with the help of our Department of Economic and Social Affairs, we polled all of the members of the General Assembly, asking them whether they were prepared to take on migration as an issue that was important for global well-being. And we got a, uh, an enthusiastic and nearly unanimous uh, response from the member states. And their answer was, no, this is not something they wanted to discuss at the global level. So that was then. And the Secretary General, who Kofi Annan, uh, an inveterate optimist, said, we're not stopping here. We need to bring in expert voices to help inspire more leadership so that this issue of migration would be taken up at the global level. And he then contacted uh, Jan Carlson and Mamfela Ramfele, two great distinguished uh, leaders with already wonderful track records in their home countries on this issue. And they formed a global commission on international migration, worked very hard, and produced an excellent report that landed at the UN, unfortunately, in the middle of the travails of the Iraq war, where the UN as an institution was being marginalized, where again, the member states were not prepared to take up the wonderful ideas in the carlson Bumpella uh, uh, report. So I want to mention two of those ideas, which, so to speak, got lost because of the inability to take up that report. The first idea, and it was very important to Jan Carlson, I know he discussed it with me on a couple of occasions in person, was the importance of acquiring and, pro and promulgating accurate information about the condition of migration in the world in our own times. The ways in which migration is absolutely transformative for many individuals who do move and is productive for both countries of origin often through remittances, but also countries of destination, many of our own, including Sweden, who gain very, very, very uh, helpful, productive, uh, generous, and, and uh, wonderful uh, laborers and investors and inventors in our own society. The economic record, and I'd be happy to respond to questions of migration, is that it's either net positive for all the countries of the OECD or, or, or not harmful. And in many cases, that doesn't measure the entrepreneurial contribution of migrants. So the positivity of immigration was one of his first message. But he knew that we needed to have better research. And then once the research was put together, better promulgation so that our publics could understand that Manifestly, they do not, not just in Europe, but also in the United States and elsewhere. There's negative stereotyping of, of migrants everywhere. The second uh, recommendation in the Carlson uh, Rumfeller report is that there needed to be leadership at the global level in the form of what they, what they called a global migration facility, which would conduct this research engage in planning for the likelihood of mass movements of people so that these would not come up as surprises to which publics 
reacted in ways that were negative. Both of those ideas are still real today and need to be part of the agenda for reform. So it, they should not be forgotten, especially here in uh, Jan Carlson's uh, hometown. This should be part of the international agenda. That's the past. Here, here is the, the, the future, or at least one future. A group of colleagues, 30 some of us around the world, including here from Sweden, Mats Carlson and uh, Justin McDermott, uh, a very, very effective official within uh, the Swedish government, and my colleague Emma Bornjas and I, with 30 plus more others, have been working on a model international mobility convention in order to outline a better future for migration. This is a, an ambitious document that looks not just at migrants, those staying for a year or more in a foreign country, or refugees, those fleeing uh, persecution, but broadens the understanding of migration to include all of those who move across borders. Uh, uh, Dr. Pelling mentioned that there are now 250 some million official UN migrants. In the world today, there are 1.3 billion per year visitors. So we have orders of magnitude more people moving across borders who are, not, who are not themselves migrants. And so we want a convention that's both comprehensive and cumulative. Comprehensive in that it covers everyone who moves across borders, from visitors to tourists, to foreign students, to labor migrants, investors, to residents, that is retirees, forced migrants and refugees. We need a, a convention that covers all of those circumstances, and it needs to be cumulative. It needs to have a ladder of rights that individuals can call upon based upon the different circumstances of what brings them across borders. A visitor like myself, for example, who will be here in Stockholm till tomorrow night if, if everything on the schedule holds up, only needs to have his or her rights realized in a relatively minimal, minimal way. If on the way back to my hotel this afternoon I get run over by a bus, I need emergency medical care as a basic human right. I need to have the right to have my own uh, freedom of thought and in an environment like this, freedom of speech. And I need to have access to the courts if I rent a bicycle and run over somebody on the sidewalk and are called in to be prosecuted. But apart from that, not many others. On the other hand, as you go up that ladder, tourists need to have their contracts honored and need to respect the cultures they're visiting. And foreign students need to have their tuition uh, be realized in free, uh, effective participation within those universities. And they deserve a transcript at the end of it. Labor migrants deserve the right to work for equal pay for equal work. They have the right to join a union and other protections. And then as we move up the scale in the humanitarian direction, forced migrants, people forced to flee their homes to protect their lives, need to have a much wider scope of rights available to them because they cannot realize, realize those rights at home. And of course, refugees are in the same position. For someone like myself, the rights I mentioned are those minimal rights because I have a right to buy property and to work back in the United States, which I don't have here in Stockholm, nor do I have all the other social protections that are embodied here. And I won't be invited to vote in your election in a couple of weeks if I st overstayed my visa. So we need rights, but we need, we need all of our rights, but we don't need all of our rights everywhere at the same time. It's a ladder. 
That's what we're hoping to someday put on the agenda of international reform. But in the meantime, we're moving towards real accomplishments in two global compacts for refugees and for migration. After the Carlson Rumfeller report, which did not have the full impact that it should have, the, the, the UN kept working. They then appointed Sir Peter Sutherland to lead the effort to create a better framework for migration. He created the GFMD, the Global Forum for Migration and Development. This eventually led to the New York Declaration, which led to the two compacts that will be agreed upon, hopefully, in Marrakesh this December. And these are real accomplishments, especially if we compare it back to the unanimous no we received in 2003. But in the view of the commission that put together the model convention in front of you, good as these two compacts are, and I really do praise Madame Arbour for the leadership she's taken together with Switzerland and Mexico, and UNHCR doing the same thing on the Global Compact on Refugees, they're still, in our view, not quite going to be enough. And so in my last couple minutes, I want to talk about four things that are embedded in the Model International Migration Convention that are, that are useful in the reform process. I would love to see them go into the compacts, but if they do not, they should be front and center for what happens after the compacts. The first is that we need to improve our understanding and the rules that govern temporary migration or circular migration. We live in a world today of lose-lose if we base uh, existing rules on the Migrant Workers Convention of 1990. There are too many rights and too few rights embodied in the Migrant Workers Convention. Too many rights in the Migrant Workers Convention that even temporary migrants would, would immediately, on an equal basis, have access to all of the social protections that citizens have spent generations creating in their home countries, including social housing. And there is a pushback against that by citizens saying that we've paid taxes for all of this, we deserve to be first in line, and the temporary migrants should not be first in line for this. So too many rights. And what that means is that countries that might be willing to take in temporary labor will not do so because of the pushback from their own citizens. And it means that potential temporary migrants don't get the employment that they very much may, would want and that will return resources through remittances and in other ways back to their home countries. So we're missing out on a win-win if we had a better regime for temporary migration or circular migration. That unfortunately is the current condition. But there are also too few rights embodied in the Migrant Workers Convention. It doesn't include rights for multiple visas so that a temporary migrant could maintain his full family relationships. It doesn't contain rights for portable pensions, so pensions that are earned would be taken back home and enjoyed because they've been earned. Nor does it include cutoff times so that individuals don't become permanently temporary and not able to enjoy the full set of rights that an individual should have if they've begun to establish a long-term commitment to the country of their destination. So we need a better regime for circular migration. The second thing we need is that we need a better understanding of some of the circumstances that force people to flee. The, migrant, the Refugee Convention of 1951 is a landmark in human rights. It's a great document. But if it's read with a very narrow lawyer's eye, the standard of persecution that has to be proved for, as I, as I quote, race, religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion is too narrow. It doesn't cover the full circumstances in which people have to flee for their lives. 
we need to recognize that new condition, that if someone is fleeing to save their lives or to avoid arbitrary incarceration, they deserve the kind of asylum that will allow them to save their lives and avoid that arbitrary incarceration. So we need a new standard called serious harm, which is just that. And that then will incorporate all sorts of civil wars, generalized violence, climate change, uh, necessary migration, drought that has destroyed the livelihoods of entire agricultural communities. This is a considerable broadening, therefore, of the right of refugees to include everyone who's fleeing for their life. I, we realize that that's quite ambitious. But to make that more realizable, there's two last points I want to mention. One is something we call a mobility visa clearinghouse. That is, we need to open more safe and regular pathways for legal documented migration coming into countries. And this is not undoable. The labor economists in our various countries are capable of identifying needs for labor, that is demand for particular labor skills that are not in the likely five to 10 year future going to be met by national citizens. National citizens deserve first priority at labor opportunities within our countries, but we will not meet those, and that's predictable for many countries, not all countries, but for many countries. In my own, in, my, in the United States, Michael Clemens, a very good economist at the Center for Global Development, have identified in the US agricultural labor, also healthcare labor, both for nurses and doctors, and high quality engineers in Silicon Valley as labor sectors that will not fully be met in any reasonable compilation by American citizens in the future. And these are jobs that not being filled, we will not have an ability to grow the American economy in the way that we want to if they're not filled. But we can identify them. And these kinds of jobs should be made available on a internet platform where they're listed and available for application to individuals, employment firms, or countries so that individuals with a, a legal, documented, visa-based way could migrate to another country and fulfill those. And we suggest in the convention that 10% of those visas on this platform be available on a priority basis for refugees who meet the skill standards that are required to have prior access to those jobs, again, to encourage uh, resettlement. Um, the last point we get to focuses on refugees and forced migrants. That is, we need to share responsibility. Peter Sutherland has described the current model of responsibility sharing as responsibility by proximity. If your country happens to be next door to a civil war, if you are Jordan, Lebanon, or Turkey next door to Syria, you have the responsibility to care for the Syrian refugees who are fleeing their country. Globally, 86% of the world's refugees are being provided asylum in developing countries. That's not a sustainable long-run future. One estimate suggests that 80% of the total amount of money spent on refugees in the entire world is spent in Europe, North America, and a few other countries. So 80% of the spending is in Europe, North America, and a few other countries. 86% of the refugees are being supported in the Lebanons, the Jordans, the Turkeys, the uh, northern Pakistan, the Kenyas, and others that are supporting refugees. 
not sustainable. We need a new formula for responsibility. And what we propose is the responsibility by capability. That is, countries, based upon their capability of providing assistance, should be expected to do so. In this model we present here, we start out with the European formula, that is a basis of GDP, population, unemployment, past refugee loads. But we know, we read the newspapers, it did not work in Europe. Uh, the formula was there, but at most 10,000 people were resettled according to that formula. It's not viable as a top-down imposition. So we say we can't create a, a global world government to create those kinds of necessary binding quotas. We're saying, let's borrow from the model of the Paris Climate Treaty, which is a voluntary set of commitments, and ask countries to show up at an annual meeting convened by UNHCR and other authorities. UNHCR would describe the global demand for support for refugees in terms of financial cost and resettlement. The, the refugee experts here in the room will know that UNHCR typically estimates a minimum of 10% of refugees need to move to places where their needs can be better met. So a lot can be done through financing, but there still will need substantial resettlement. UNHCR would identify that demand, and then using a, a proxy or an approximation of the European formula suggests that your country's level of responsibility is X, Y, or Z in terms of dollars or resettlement. You choose the combination of the two. Countries then would step up on an annual basis and say, here's what we're going to do for the next year on their own national choices based on, based on their own decision. And then UNHCR's job every year would be to keep score. Uh, they would step in and say, here's how you're doing with the hope that by bringing all the countries together in the same room, they will encourage each other to be better global citizens and come closer to meeting the nature of the world's demands. Will this solve once and for all fully the level of support needed? No, some of our countries are shameless, so naming and shaming doesn't work well for them. But our hope is in this kind of a convention that this kind of a framework will produce some better outcomes. So we're pushing ahead. We think these things are not wildly un unrealistic. Some of them are ambitious. I know that uh, some of the negotiators in the two global compacts have considered elements of this convention, looking for what might be usable for them. The process has been very difficult. It started out more ambitious than the draft currently is, especially on the migration compact. The refugee compact has been a bit more progressive. I give all support to the diplomats who are working so hard to produce something in Marrakesh. My only message is borrow as much as you can, and what you can't borrow, let's put on the agenda for the next 10 years to work with our government, starting from civil society, to encourage them to step up, to create a comprehensive, cumulative uh, regime for the movement of people across borders. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, um, Professor Doyle, please don't leave just now. I'll just uh, take the opportunity to ask you uh, just, just one question. I think that 
you try to end on a positive note. Still, I think that that's what we're all um, looking for to see. Could this document, I indeed, for my thing, it is indeed a very inspire, in, in, inspiring document, a very inspiring effort to try to see, can you bring some of the most experienced experts and scholars on the issue together and have them think in a kind of an open access, uh, in, in welcoming process to see, can we draft a new kind of structure to take care of issues relating to migration uh, and indeed to, to, to mobility. So let me just ask you in the context we are in now, we have the new um, global development agenda, the Agenda 2030 adopted in September 2015. And then we had um, the summit in, in September 2016 on, on large movements of of, uh, of refugees to uh, decide upon a global compact on refugees and another global compact for migration. And then we have this uh, conference coming up now, the, the compact on refugees will be adopted as a, as a report to the General Assembly in September, but there is this intergovernmental conference taking place in Marrakesh in December. It's the first time that the UN has decided to have this kind of highest level conference dedicated to the issue of of migration. Are you optimistic? Are we moving towards a, a reinforcement of a, of a structure in the world that can better handle, better manage uh, migration? And, and, and in what sense does this initiative possibly uh, contribute to, to this? Um, I would say that in the longer view, I'm optimistic. You know, I have the advantage of being there in 2003 when the, the international community says, we don't even want to discuss this, and here we are discussing it in a serious and substantial way. So that's optimistic. Over the past few years, uh, especially since 2015, our, our governments have been panicked by uh, large-scale, in some cases, disorderly movement of people across borders. Uh, some of our politicians uh, have used the issue of migration and the fears that have been generated in our publics to demonize them. Uh, and so in the past few years, uh, the, the, the progress has gone down. So 2003 is here, we're here, but 2015 we're here and we're now about mm -hmm. here in terms of what's happening. As again, the, the leadership, uh, both from UNHCR and then from Madame Arbour, and uh, Jörg Lauber from Switzerland, and Ambassador uh, Gomez Camacho of Mexico has been excellent. They have been struggling to create a progressive document. Um, UNHCR, because of their more, more ownership and control, have done a little better. But that's not for uh, any lack of trying by the two ambassadors in Madame Arbour, trying to hold together a progressive vision not of a legal set of commitments, but of a series of policy guidelines that they're putting on the table that if, if they would be adopted by governments would produce a better future. One government has already walked out of the process, unfortunately, mm -hmm. a sign of some of the difficulties ahead, and other governments have dialed back some of the more ambitious ideas that Madame Arbour put in the early drafts. But nonetheless, I'm pretty confident that we will get some kind of a statement in Marrakesh that will identify areas that will be win-win solutions for all of our countries. 
And that I think is still an accomplishment and one that I'm, I would be happy to celebrate. Mm -hmm. But once they're done, we still have an awful lot still to do. Mm -hmm. And that's what we try to outline in our convention. Okay, excellent, Professor Doyle. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to inviting you again to revise the 2.0 version of this document and possibly its implementation. Thank you, thank you so much. I will now uh, hand over the floor to um, Nicola Klasse, who is ambassador uh, for... Um, I will read your title. You are coordinator for migration and refugee issues at the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs and an ambassador. Please, Nicola Klaus, I have asked uh, Nicola to tell, tell us a little bit about Sweden's role in the preparation of uh, um, the global compacts. I know that what you deal with specifically is the global compact on refugees to be adopted at the General Assembly, but also to tell us a little bit about what to expect of of Sweden's role towards the, the um, intergovernmental conference in Marrakesh, and, and also in general about Sweden's role and position when it comes to the efforts to try to have a better management of, of global migration and mobility. Please, your floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. I've just come back from uh, the border area between northern Uganda and South Sudan. And when you're out there and you see how things are actually on the ground, you're very reminded about how acute uh, these issues are and how much attention we need to pay to these matters. Um, and, and I'd just like to start there by saying that we have to get better at solving conflicts. I think quite often we are dealing with the symptoms of conflicts instead of thinking that we have to solve them. We're looking at, uh, obviously, Syria, but if you take Africa, the largest crisis there is South Sudan. Um, I don't see very much about South Sudan in the newspapers. Uh, it's a massive crisis. The country in Africa now that's taking the biggest amount of refugees is Uganda. Um, there could be as many as 1.4 million refugees in Uganda. Um, we see a crisis looming in DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, with lots of refugees coming in the western part of Uganda from that country, but also with Tanzania. Um, uh, well, maybe uh, we see a change there as regards uh, Burundian refugees. So uh, a lot of Burundian refugees are also going to Uganda. I just wanted to start off there because I think we must never forget that uh, we have to get better at solving conflicts. Second point I want to make is that we need more intellectual discipline as regards the difference between migrant and refugees, and that's where we get into the global compacts that uh, have been referred to. And I do see a tendency that it is very often the case that the two are confused or used interchangeably, which is not a, a, a very good thing. Um, the problem, though, is that we see very often today that the migration routes are so-called mixed migration routes, so that migrants and refugees are traveling along the same routes. Sometimes you will see migrants starting off in a country but become so vulnerable on their route that in the end they could end up as refugees. How do we deal with that? That is definitely a very big issue. Vulnerable migrants, I would argue, is something we have to look at carefully, seriously. It is being done in the migration compact, but we definitely need more of focus on that particular issue. Sweden has been very engaged on the two uh, compacts. Uh, as was mentioned, I've uh, 
I'm participating in the work of uh, the Global Compact on Refugees, and we have a great team working on um, the Migration Compact. There's an interesting difference between the two that it's worth noticing. The Global Compact on Migration is being negotiated, whilst the Global Compact on Refugee is happening in the way of consultations. So you might say, well, actually, I'm not sure there's a big difference. There is. There's a big difference because the first one on migration is actually taking place. It's an intergovernmental um, way of uh, negotiating, uh, and it's run by uh, the co-chairs Mexico and um, Switzerland. Whilst the uh, Compact on Refugees, with consultations, it's led by the UNHCR. Looking at the Migration Compact, I have to confess that there was a bit of a disappointment in December last year when the U.S. pulled out. Big disappointment because uh, the U.S. is the country in the world that takes the largest amount of migrants. Uh, the two other countries in that league are uh, Germany and Russia. But that, that was a, a sad development, but the, uh, the negotiations are, uh, are going along, and I think somehow... It's not a case about being an optimist or a pessimist. That's, uh, I'm sort of quoting Guterres here. It's about being determined, being determined about that we are going to get two compacts. Um, it's going to be, I think, tougher as regards the migration compact because it's such a broad um, compact, uh, but we are obviously hoping that it will contribute to better protection of the human rights of migrants that we're looking at facilitating mobility through safe and regular movement. We need to address irregular migration and we need to enhance development and inclusion of migrants. The tension between regular and irregular migration is very much at the focus in the Migration Compact. The Refugee Compact is interesting. There, I would say it has been, we were discussing that at the beginning of the um, thematic discussions that we had last autumn, that somehow the, the atmosphere in the room was very constructive. I think the UNHCR handled this extremely well by giving credit to countries who are actually taking a lot of refugees. Instead of letting everyone be on panels, they would pick out countries like Uganda, obviously having one of the most generous policies now on refugees, Turkey, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, many other countries, Germany, I should add, that would then share their experiences of large um, uh, refugee uh, populations. And I think that was very helpful because that was then added to the text of uh, the uh, Global Compact on, on Refugees and, and very, a very constructive start. Now we're in the face of uh, consultations and um, so far so good, although we have to be prepared for this is an international consultation and it is likely to get much tougher as we get closer to the uh, uh, to the end of the consultations which is actually very soon in July but we're hoping that uh, that will have a, a refugee compact that gives us a better way of dealing with large-scale movements of refugees there's a specific aspect here that I would like to raise with the refugee compact that I think is extremely important that is actually my third point. Having to, in this job now for two years, there is something that I have taken to my heart and has become, I wouldn't say obsession, but it's been a sort of a big focus, and that is education. 
I think that we have to be much better at looking at education in many places across the world, but not least in Africa. In the Global Compact on Refugees, we do see, and I think that's very, very positive, that the UNHCR wants to see education as a much bigger part of our humanitarian response in a refugee crisis. This is extremely important. And I would say that we have to begin very early. When you see people, refugees coming in, often single mothers, traumatized, if there's nothing for the children to do, and you have a mother who is exhausted, um, or a father, and, and you, just, you just see that they need the kind of support. The children need to be with other children and, and you know, play, have fun, but also then get into primary school, that there should be a secondary uh, education possibility. Um, but more often than not, that is not the case. Definitely uh, in Africa, it has been difficult. In um, where I went now in Adjumandi in northern Uganda, 11% of the um, refugees are in secondary school. We met some uh, teenagers uh, at a school in, in, uh, in Adjumandi, secondary school, um, South Sudanese children. All, all of them uh, just had a, we asked them, so when they got to Uganda, uh, they, uh, one teenager had traveled with, his, uh, with her dad. Uh, the other two teenagers um, that we spoke with had traveled with their uh, mothers. And when they were explaining the hardships that they were going through, um, first of all, paying the school fee, you realize then that your parent will probably have to negotiate and uh, probably sell some of the food rations to be able to pay for the school fee. But then at the school, there were 350 pupils. So in a classroom, there would be 175 pupils, no books. But he was saying, you know, I left my books in, in South Sudan. There's no library here. And uh, we, we just have to manage. And he said, I'm looking forward to, uh, to uh, national exams, but I've never, I, I, I sort of really would dream about conducting a laboratory test. There's no laboratory here. There's no way. There's sort of, uh, I mean, the conditions here are, are, are quite awful. And you just say to yourself, these things we can fix. And this is my point, that we can. And I think through this global compact on refugees, we have to be able to sit down and look at the kind of humanitarian response that we should be providing, no matter whether it is Jordan, Lebanon, or uh, Uganda. We have to be able to do that. And this is something that I think also is important to point out, that when you look at migration, look at West Africa today, where you have the biggest pressure in the world uh, as regards migration. And then you look at the education levels. Take Niger as an example. About 11% of the women in Niger uh, know how to read and write. That's something that we really <laughs> need to look at. There are three countries in Africa today that are moving in the right direction on education, according to UNESCO statistics. It's Ghana, Kenya, and Morocco. We see a country like Tanzania that used to be really doing well on education, but because of population growth, it's very hard to catch up building enough schools, having enough teachers. Same with Egypt. The list can be made very long. And I think that is something that we need really to, um, to look at. So um, I just want to point that out. Education, education, education. It's uh, also when you see these young boys, and I met, was in Mali, uh, meeting young boys that have been picked up in the desert. Their idea about what the map looks like, the fact that you could be in this town, Gao, and that 
Algeria would be within walking distance because that's what the people smugglers are telling you. And the people smugglers, this is a billion dollar industry. They will give all kinds of uh, ideas to people about how easy it is to cross the desert, how easy it is to go through Libya, and how easy it is to cross the Mediterranean. Um, but somehow that bit needs to be uh, present. So uh, that was a, um, maybe a, a long way of explaining why these compacts and why we, we take a very big interest and do a lot of work on these uh, compacts. And we do hope, although they're not binding, uh, but we do hope that they will give the kind of impetus and the fact that you see countries sitting there discussing these, exchanging views and realizing that this is very serious. If we don't, if we don't actually take this seriously, we, um, we are in trouble. So therefore, I'm also very grateful that you're all here listening to these matters because it's extremely important. Thank you. Thank you, Nicola. Stay, uh, stay just, um, just a moment. It is um, indeed something new as far as I've understood that the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs does indeed have an ambassador who is responsible for migration and refugee issues. That, that is a sign of the importance that Sweden and the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs places on, on, on these, uh, these issues. And you, you are a, a very experienced uh, diplomat. Can I, can I ask you, what is your interpretation of the fact that there are these differences that you explained between the two compact processes. The one compact on migration, indeed for migration, the, 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 I've, I've been told that it's important to stress that the compact is actually called for migration, uh, will be negotiated, whereas the compact on refugees, it will be uh, only um, subjected to uh, consultations. Is the interpretation right to say that there is a fear that if the global compact on refugees would be put to negotiations, it could undermine the standards that we already have, that we would risk moving backwards, maybe putting into question uh, human achievements such as the 1951 uh, Refugee Convention. What's your interpretation? Well, um, I'd probably make a... Um bit of a different interpretation. Uh, of course, it would be uh, very unfortunate if, if one unraveled the Geneva. That has not been a part of the consultations. We, we feared at the beginning that this could happen, that there would be a country or several countries raising this issue. It has not been the case as of yet. What did happen in New York when they came up with the New York Declaration was that they were sort of thinking that, well, the, the refugee compact, that's easier. So we'll just deal with that straight away and we'll just have it straight away adopted. But then there were countries saying, uh oh, uh, oh, we're not going to accept that because they were worried that if you, you let go of the refugee compact, then that would make negotiations on the migration compact more difficult. So it was almost held hostage by the other compact. And this is what we're sort of interested in looking at as we get closer to the autumn. And there, I think, will be con uh, there will be discussions as we get toward the final stages because. The, um, the compacts will be sort of ready uh, a bit before they're actually adopted. There's always a danger when you have that um, time frame in, in between. And, and who knows if we, when we get closer that you, you do see a tendency, not that they will merge, but, but you, you get a, a closer alliance between the two. But there are countries that are adamantly not wanting to refer between the two. So keeping them separate, and there will be other countries that do see a point in uh, in, in doing that. So 
in negotiations and consultations, you don't know, but I am, as I said, uh, noticing a determination amongst many countries, speci specifically on the refugees, because I think most countries nowadays realize this is too serious. I mean, it was extremely embarrassing uh, not to, to solve this. So I think we can be um, hopefully confident that the refugee compact will be uh, uh, somehow produced, hopefully according to timetable. And as I said, the migration compact I think will be a bit more difficult, but uh, countries are set on adopting this in December in Morocco. Excellent. Great to know that Sweden is part of this determination that you talked about. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you. I will now uh, ask the, the panel to join us uh, up here. Um, I will ask Stephanie to put your signs up so that you can... We have tried to put together a panel representing different kinds of stakeholders and different kinds of interests, and I've asked all of them to prepare just a couple of minute intervention to say what their perspective will be on the issues that are at stake in Marrakesh in, in December and in these processes towards a global compact on migration and on, on refugees. Please uh, uh, take the floor. We have uh, George Joseph, who is the director for migration at Caritas Sweden. But uh, George, you're also a board member of the Platform for International Cooperation on Undocumented Migrants. So representing a very important stakeholders, a very seldom uh, is able to take the uh, to take the floor. I think that that perspective would be very very important. We have Oa Saudin Ekman, who is a migration expert and analysis at the TSEU, is the as you know the Sweden's largest white collar trade union uh, uh, confederation. Next to Oa, we have Hamza Ibrahim. In my view, he the most important part of his CV is that he is a graduate of Ariana Academy, but I cannot uh, claim any credits of his brilliance. Uh, Hamza is also a co-founder of Ensam Commanders Verbund, an organization that now I think have over 3,000 uh, members, some 17 different local uh, associations all across Sweden doing an incredibly important uh, job. And Hamza is now this year also the Sweden's youth representative towards the General Assembly of the UN. So he would be a very important voice as well at the General Assembly uh, this autumn. And last but not least, Emma Borines, who is the project coordinator of this international migration project at the uh, Columbia Global Policy Initiative, and who's been working very closely with Professor Doyle to uh, develop the the model international mobility uh, conventions. I'm looking forward to, ah, George Andrian, sorry. <laughs> you, you are here too and it took your place. Uh, George Andrian, who is here, is Secretary General of Diakonia and recently Chairman of Concord, which is a platform for over 50 Swedish NGOs working with solidarity and development issues. So very important to have that perspective on this panel um, as well. I, I think I propose that we start from your end. Uh, George, are you there? Yeah. Yes, I am. I need, I need to move forward so, like, oops, so that I can, I can see you like this. Please, the floor is yours. It's nice to be with two George together. <laughs> yeah. First of all, let me apologize for my voice. I'm suffering from a very serious uh, allergic reaction. So. Please excuse me for my voice. Um, uh, I, I think I agree with both the, uh, Professor Doyle and also uh, Ambassador Nicole. But I may have a, a few comments, but I will come back to it on, on that one. Because for me, the, the best thing is before we reach to the promised land of your vision of having a migration, what, what do you call the uh, mobility convention, it is important to have at least, let's 
facilitate mobility today. But, uh, because when you look at the, the reality of what's happening uh, in the context of the global compacts we are discussing, uh, most of the policies, discourse and policy around the world today is dealing with keep the migrants away, to prevent migration and, and, um, and fight irregular migration. And fighting smugglers uh, in isolation is useless. The irregular migration um, market is created by, among other things, is also the uh, barriers to mobility or, or lack of legal and safe pathways. So this can be done. We don't need to recreate. It is expanding existing legal frameworks. Um, then uh, I will speak to not only behalf of the people, because uh, I'm also at the, uh, the global civil society steering group on global forward migration and development, and also the global compact on migration. And we do have, we um, come among other things, uh, the NGO delegation who is at the uh, negotiations in New York for the behalf of the civil society. We are more focused on the global um, migration compact and than the, the refugee compact because at least we are more sure about the refugee compact, but we are much more concerned about the way things are moving. Precisely, the, uh, Ambassador Nicola said that the, the tension between the irregular and regular migration issues. Uh, we do asking for the, such an example for the, the firewalls, uh, and there's a misconception among the member states of the UN what we mean by firewalls. It is not uh, because, among other things, states were arguing for if you create a firewall, then the uh, different branches of the government won't be able to talk to each other. That's not what we meant. It is also to have a safety for the access to the basic rights of the migrants, irrespective of their legal status. It is also falling back into the New York Declaration. When we look at all the way the negotiations are going today, Last week was the fourth negotiation and the two more to go. I think the next week is the, the rest of the negotiation starting. I'm afraid it may uh, fall below the standard of the New York Declaration. That danger is there, the way the things are progressing now. But I just got a, a, an SMS from my colleagues uh, from New York. They are saying, maybe things are not as bad as we thought until yesterday. It seems there are some kind of, among other things, some progressive states like, uh, you know, Mexico, Brazil, Sweden, among other things, and also from Switzerland. There is much more willingness to find a compromise wording in the, where there are serious concerns in regarding to the access to services, to access um, issues of detention, the issues of um, uh, mixed migration safe and regular pathways. There is much more, uh, well, there are some progress being made in terms of the wording in different articles. So there is some room for hope and optimism. And we, we still hope that it, that's the way it's going to be. Thanks a lot. Uh, Georg Andrén, from the perspective of, of NGOs working with development issues, what's your perspective on, on what's at stake in, in, in December in these processes? Thank you, Lisa. Um, well, there are lots of perspectives, of course. I will start with something I won't talk 
much about, and that is uh, coming from the Concord perspective. As you might have noticed, Concord Sweden just recently published our yearly uh, reading of the Swedish policy for global development, and in that in that report, we are actually very very disappointed in the government's current shifts in migration or asylum seeker policies, where we actually do recommend the Swedish government to go back to the former policies of, of how to receive and how to take care of people seeking, uh, seeking asylum and seeking refuge in this country. But also questioning the way the European Union is currently working, uh, uh, setting up bilateral uh, treaties with other governments and how to try to push the migrant flows to stay out of Europe, which we find um, extremely troublesome, especially when you look at uh, human rights uh, abuses and so on in these, in these bilateral agreements. But what I would like to speak more about is on the, on the circular migration. You, you, Professor Doyle, spoke a bit on that. And I will start with, I will start with actually, from my former job as the Swedish ambassador to Central America, I remember some conversations I had with the at that time, um, Guatemalan Minister for Foreign Affairs, leading up to this global summit uh, in New York in, in September 2016. Because he, in every conversation he had in an open meeting or in bilateral meetings, he opposed the fact that there were forced migrants leaving Central America through Mexico up to the US. He always talked about voluntary migration. If, if you look at the Central American migration situation, you can't really distinguish between voluntary or forced migration. They're not pushed away because of conflict, but they are pushed away because of violence, of lack of opportunities, and so on. So I think that that conversation wasn't really fruitful. And it also, for him and for the government of Guatemala, for El Salvador and these countries, it became rather a tumbling stone rather than a way forward to really discuss these issues. I was recently, you were, um, Ambassador Klasse, you were recently in the border lines between Uganda and Sudan. I was recently on the border between Thailand and Myanmar, visiting one of the nine camps that formed the uh, transborder consortium, which Diakonia is part, the camp of May Sot. And that, that visit uh, had a great impact on me. Uh, the organizers organized a conversation with a group of 10 to 12 young people. These camps uh, host people that came 30 years ago, 20 years ago, or recently. A few of these youngsters were born in the camps. Others came with their parents. Others have come recently in their own right. These people have, are part of communities that have been pushed out of Myanmar because of conflict, because of lack of opportunities, etc., etc. And they have been living in these camps for 30 years. We as the kind of international community have failed to respond to their needs. And I, uh, when I say we, I mean the kind of policymakers, diplomats, civil society, the donor communities, because these camps are going to be closed next year. We still have something about 100,000 people living in these camps. They are not going to go back to Myanmar voluntarily. So they will be, they will become, 1st of January 2020 or so, they will become illegal inhabitants in Thailand. What to do? And here we sit with these young people, they are, they are hooked up to the internet, 
They managed to go in and out of the camp. We didn't ask too many questions about that. And they are part of a global community. And they, are, they speak English better than the young people I met in Thailand. And they are prepared. And they want to work. And they want to be part of this. There is today no future. Or there is maybe a little light of hope for these young people uh, living in this, in this particular camp, Mesot, that we talked to. And that is the fact that the Thais are now setting up specialized economic zones on the Thai side, and they need labor. We, as the Akunia, talking to the Swedish government, talking to CIDA, will no longer have funds to continue supporting these camps, which in a way might be good. But we have, in a way, abandoned these people. So there's no way out, and the uh, international community, through government to government, through, through diplomatic relationships, or to that end also the donor community, we have no solution. The private sector might sit with the solution. They need, they need labor, they need employable people, and talking to them, it was suddenly possible to us to reach out to the Ministry, ministry of Interior in Thailand to see when we can start looking at uh, issuing temporary work permits or other legal status for these migrants living in, uh, in these camps to access this new labor market. I am not that naive that I believe that, that migrant workers is this solution, but at least it is, could be part of the solution. I say this because one thing that I, ha that I haven't heard today is the fact that the private sector is also part. And we need, we need as civil society, governments, international community, to bring in private sector to see how they can be partners also in dialoguing with, with um, in this case, Ministry for Interior in Thailand to make sure that there is a possibility uh, for them to enter into the open market. Thank you so much, Dior, uh, for bringing this this uh, snapshot also from from this uh, very troubled uh, area on the other side of Myanmar. Of course, they have the ongoing refugee situation with the Rohingyas fleeing into Bangladesh, but both of them highlighting the issue of how to move from one status into another and to move in from a very temporary situation into something that can be permanently viable, something that is indeed very much a part of the model international mobility convention to make sure that people can transit from one status to the other and have accumulative rights according to their to their situation i move on to you uh Osa from from tsu what's your uh, trade union perspective on these issues mm -hmm. well i'd like to share a couple of reflections um on the basis of um my experience from the international trade union uh context um I think there's a tendency at the moment to speak about migration in general, as well as labor migration as new phenomenon. As we well know, of course, labor migration has been going on for a long time, but there are some things that sort of set labor migration today apart from some of the labor migration that has happened previously. Um, and it's really important to have a constant sort of conversation about whether the instruments we have today are up to date or whether there have been some decisive changes that require new solutions. And I had the huge pleasure of being at last year's International Labour Conference, which had a special committee on labour migration, um, and was able to sort of take part uh, of these discussions on that, that very issue. Um, and 
I think that there are a lot of things that have changed over the past few decades. Uh, one thing that has been mentioned in very briefly is the increase of bilateral labor agreements between um, bilateral labor migration agreements between different states. Uh, that's this whole new regulatory framework that's kind of becoming very important where states can enter into agreements on either sending, for example, a specific category of workers, recruiting them from one country to the other, or more sort of overarching frameworks for uh, labor migration. That's one thing that has changed. Um, for some of these challenges, I think it's, I'm quite optimistic that we can find good solutions. One issue that's emerged is the importance of recognition of skills that Lisa mentioned as well in her presentation. I think it won't be that hard to find solutions. There are a lot of people with shared, in, there are parties with shared interests in that issue. But there are some, in these, all these changes that are going on, there are some sticking points um, and that from a trade union perspective are incredibly important to raise in the current context. And one of them is the access to basic labor and trade union rights. Um, a lot of the increase in labor migration over the past two decades has been from what we kind of, perhaps in a slightly old fashioned sense, call south to south countries. Um, there's a very, there are very important migration corridors um, to, for example, the Gulf countries, uh, where there is a very real deficit of rights for all workers, but particularly migrant workers. Um, and that's a huge challenge. We're seeing perhaps some small breakthroughs in some countries, for example, Qatar's initiative uh, to demolish their, abolish their kafala system, um, but a lot of challenges remain. And that's, that's at the very, very top of our agenda when it comes to a uh, framework for labor migration. A second challenge is related to temporary labor migration. Um, it's been mentioned by several of the previous speakers that this is a very important possibility, a very important opportunity, um, and that it's, uh, well, something, something that we need to find increased possibilities for. And I would agree with that. There is a place for temporary labor migration. It can pr provide good possibilities for people who want to go to another country for a specific uh, period of time and return to their home countries. It can fill needs in the labor market in that country and bring benefits to the ascending uh, country. But there are also a lot of challenges associated with temporary labor migration and those challenges need to be met. Um, there's a certain precarity uh, that sort of inherently comes with having a temporary status in a country. Uh, and the risk is if we put people in a position where they are permanently in a in a, on a temporary status in a foreign country, if there are no channels to gaining permanent status, alternatively, that companies fill their permanent needs of labor with a sort of turn, constant turnover of temporary, quite precarious labor. That would be another very bad solution. So again, we need to sort of really um, uh, strengthen the position of, of rights of migrant workers, uh, also on these temporary contracts. Uh, and always have possibilities uh, of converting temporary status into permanent status. And finally, I would highlight one, one, um, one challenge um, that comes out of some of the changes that have occurred in uh, labor migration, and that is the issue of fair recruitment. Uh, labor migration a few decades ago was something that was typically organized government to government, right? Like the um, public employment services would organize and facilitate labor migration. Today, the situation is a bit different. It's typically done through private companies, uh, either direct recruitment or various intermediaries. And as a result of that, we've seen 
sort of some predatory practices emerged. For example, um, very high recruitment fees and other forms of sort of misleading workers when they are being recruited and taken to a foreign country. Uh, that's why sort of fair recruitment is at the very top of uh, well the workers' agenda really, but also in general the ILO work in um, moving forward with labour migration. So I could go on and mention a whole range of other challenges and issues that we need to confront. But if I would sort of summarise it all, I would say that despite some new phenomena emerging in the context of labour migration, really we're not starting from scratch, um, and we need to build on some of the existing uh, sort of conventions from the ILO and frameworks that exist and really strengthen those, um, those instruments in order to make sure that we strengthen the rights of migrant workers. And I think that's very important in the continued work uh, on a sort of global level um, to build on, on, these, uh, on these conventions that have been negotiated, not just by states, but by uh, governments, workers, and employers' organizations. Uh, and to keep that special um, sort of safeguard, that special place for, for those tripartite uh, mechanisms. So to bring in the ILO in this work and have a very sort of strong uh, place for them. And I'll wrap up there. Yes. Thank you so much, Osa. I'll move on to Hamza, as you yourself, uh, having arrived to Sweden as an unaccompanied uh, minor and having worked with other unaccompanied uh, minors here in Sweden. What's your position? What's your perspective on, on these issues? Thank you very much. Um, it's really great uh, to be here and, and discuss these issues with you guys. I think I myself has been directly affected by these issues. Um, Moving from Sweden, moving from Somalia to Sweden, um, early 2011, and working with several youth who have been directly affected uh, by immigration and and who came to Sweden as a, as a refugees. Um, one thing that I really see is that when discussions of global compacts is being discussed, there is no um, inclusion of children right. Uh, there is initiative that has been started uh, by several uh, civil society groups uh, where they try to include uh, what are the children, how can be children rights formulated in the global compacts. And for me, uh, that's a very important thing because the kind of the statistic that you have shown as um, the 50 million people who are moving across the borders, I think 70% of that population population is, is, is youth and children and it's very important that we have a clear guidelines what to include um, in the global compacts when it comes to the children right and <clears throat> through my experience I think one of the important things that we should maybe focus on with the current political atmosphere uh, in Europe and, and in even the whole world we see the Slovenic attacks of, of, of immigrants in, in South Africa uh, the Kenyan government trying to close the, the Dab refugee camp and, 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 and telling, uh, saying that it's a threat to their, to their security. I think the, there's a lot of how the discussions should be, how can we change the public perception on the whole thing? Because I remember when I came to Sweden in 2011 and, uh, and how the discussion was uh, according to the camp and minors, and today it's, it's, it's a great, it's a big difference. And how can we include um, these children who are crossing borders in the receiving society's uh, uh, activities? And, 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 and how can they 
start a new life that they cannot be discriminated. I think that's a very important thing. And one other thing that we have been really discussing with, with, with the youth organizations here in Sweden who has uh, shown some interest on these issues uh, is that detention of children uh, because of their immigration status. Uh, we have seen that that happens every day and now and different states doesn't respect um, the rights of these children. And I think that will have been um, a very good thing to be included in the global compact for the refugees so that children's rights can be respected. Um, and one other thing is that it's very important for the children is family reunification, which I think um, with the current tough asylum laws and, 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 and political signals that has been sent by different uh, uh, receiving uh, states that they are trying to have a tough conditions uh, and tough laws to limit family reunification and, 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 and giving temporary residence to, to, to the children, which make them to lose their focus. Uh, I think I could have not been standing here today if I could have get a temporary uh, residence on the first day that I came to Sweden. Uh, and um, that's something that should be actually focused on and, and how can we maybe try to, most of the, like now in Sweden, there's that discussion going on that children convention should be a, a Swedish law and, and the kind of the, uh, the kind of laws that we have which limits family reunification for the children. I think it's contrary to that. And um, these are the some of the issues that I expect to be discussed in, in the global compact and, and try to be raised. Thank you so much, Hamza. Thank you so much for raising the fact that children's rights are also migrant rights and that we need to raise both of these. I, I know indeed that the issue of protecting children against detention, particularly in transit while migrating, is one of the issues that may maybe be one of the more controversial issues at the, the, um, the conference in Marrakesh because there are lots of civil society organizations that are mobilizing and a lot of reluctance on parts of the governments to actually sign up to forbidding this, this practice of putting uh, children into, into, into detention. So I think that struggle is indeed uh, really, really important. It's, it's, it's excellent that you will be in the General Assembly and you'll be an important voice for these, uh, for these issues uh, as well. Um, now last, uh, Emma Boynes, you've been a project coordinator for this project and you worked very closely with the development of the model international mobility convention what would be your perspective on what we have discussed uh, here today and how can the model convention play into this please thank you um, <clears throat> I would like to highlight uh, two main points that need that I think need some uh, push forward or progress see some progress in these compact processes in order really for this to be considered a success in my view and both of them are very polit politically difficult so it's not I don't believe they're they, they're going to be reconciled with these compacts by by December but at least there needs to be a start of the discussion and maybe some placeholders in the compact so that uh, the progress can be made then within the next uh, few years and decades so uh, the first uh, and I also believe that in these two um, um, issues, the Mobility Convention has a lot to offer in terms of ideas. And the first one is about vulnerable populations that also Ambassador Casa mentioned, this mixed uh, flows, which really was 
what gave rise to this ambitious um, project in the first place, uh, putting the issue of migration at the international agenda, really, um, and especially the um, crisis uh, on the Mediterranean, but also um, victims of trafficking in Northern Africa or um, victims of gang violence in Central America, and an increased recognition um, that about the extreme vulnerability of many of these people who don't necessarily fall into the neat definition of the 1951 convention. Um, and now we have two parallel processes um, for refugees and for migrants, and there is a risk uh, or a concern that uh, this population could fall in between uh, those two compacts. Um, there has been some uh, headway being made in terms of, of uh, uh, covering um, these vulnerable populations. Uh, first. I think it was last week's negotiations that the UNHCR with member states put forward the idea of, uh, of stating the principle of non-reforma in the Global Migration Compact, which would be an important step. Um, there's also a, an effort currently by the African group to put forward an ob objective specifically on climate change in the Global Compact for Migration. Um, but uh, needless to say, the um, climate uh, change, uh, of course, migrants are just but, but a subset of a larger um, population that needs to, whose, whose rights really need to be uh, recognized. Um, and so this gap needs to be closed, uh, if not by December, then at least it has to be started to be closed both politically and legally in, in the years after Marrakesh. So um, there might be some placeholders put in place with, with an introduction of, of the climate um, change objective in the um, global comfort for migration, but what the model convention offers here is really this holistic approach to, to mobility uh, where we really deviate from the binary um, view on migration, migration versus uh, refugees and instead look at, at it as a spectrum uh, and most importantly by introducing this forced migrant category that is a much larger category where refugees is just a subset um, and it's based on a serious harm standard. So that's um, politically very difficult at the moment, but um, it's very important that this thinking is starting to be done uh, already now. And the second uh, point is that what Professor Lloyd mentioned about um, moving from responsibility sharing to, uh, by proximity to responsibility sharing by uh, capability, but also to move from an agenda um, on, uh, on solely on development, but to a larger agenda or cooperation agenda on mobility, which means that this has to be not only about financial transfers or transfers of resources to from developed countries to developing countries or host states, but also about creating legal pathways to a much larger extent. Um, and this, um, and George mentioned that there was some positive development here in terms of legal pathways and how member states are uh, viewing this in the in the negotiations um, and. This is about creating more resettlement opportunities, but not only that, but also creating more uh, labor visas, access to student visas. There is private sponsorship models uh, started in Canada, but are, that are, is being exported into other countries now. And here too, the model convention really proposes some um, some models, both on responsibility sharing, um, also in this labor visa pool. Um, and we also have specific provisions in our student chapter about how universities can play a role in this regard. Wow, thank you so much, Amani, giving, I, I think, again, a cause for for um, uh, optimism and a cause to, to, to look forward to whatever happens this year with the compacts, with the meeting in Marrakesh. We know that there is a, a, a continuous work and a, there is a determination on, on you and, and the team working with you, Professor Doyle, to, to carry on uh, these 
the thinking of trying to construct a better management of, of uh, migration and to ensure that migrant rights, indeed human rights, can, can be protected whatever status and whatever situation of mobility that, that you um, find yourself in. That, I think that's, that's very encouraging and I'm looking forward to, to follow your, your work. We have already crossed the, the timeline, uh, but you look very, very patient in here. Is there, is there one person who has already cleared his or her throat for just a very quick question? We can, we can allow for that before we, we move on. Do I see anyone waving your hand? Otherwise, I'm looking forward. We, uh, in the panel, we can stay on for a few minutes. I also want to uh, encourage you to read the, the um, the, the, the model convention. I know that you have asked for lawyers and others to, if they want, also come with comments and suggestions. I myself have written a, a short text about the, the global UN processes and the, and the process towards the conference in Marrakesh in December. It can be brought uh, out here. I would also want to recommend you just to have a little commercial at the end. As some of you might know, I do a podcast called Människor och Migration. So if you are Swedish speaking, I'll invite you to listen to the next uh, issue of Människor och Migration. We'll have an interview with Professor Doyle uh, in that podcast. And uh, Utrikespolitiska Institute, the Institute of International Affairs, are doing a podcast about this seminar that we encourage you to, to spread and share with, with friends and colleagues uh, as well. Thank you so much, uh, dear panel participants, and thank you for the audience. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews.